The Doctrine of the Holy Spirit by George Smeaton, Professor of Exegetical Theology, New College, Edinburgh. Lecture 6. The Spirit's Regenerating Work on the Individual. The Spirit's work in the application of redemption to the individual will next engage our attention. And we must carry with us the thought that the whole interposition of the Spirit of God rests on the ground of the Mediator's finished work. Obstacles stood in the way of the Spirit's return to the human heart of such a kind that they were insurmountable by any finite resources. But they are put out of the way by Christ's vicarious sacrifice and royal priesthood, that is, by merit and efficacy, or purchase and power. The efficacious operation of the Spirit presupposes God's sovereign love to individuals, or a personal election. Considered from the true point of view, the electing purpose of God implies that its efficacy has a special destination, and that it will reach its proper objects. They who interpret the divine word by the primary axiom that all men must share alike, and who impugn the absolute right of God to bestow salvation as men bestow their alms on whom he will by a purely free donation, forget, in their anxiety to be on a friendly footing with the spirit of the age, that the advantage which their theory seems to gain by enlarging the extent of God's love is more than counterbalanced on another point, by lack of efficacy. God's love finds out its objects. It is something far other than a mere benevolent but inefficacious desire in the divine mind which wishes, but does not potentially will, the salvation of men. The presuppositions or postulates of the doctrine of the Spirit, so far as man's necessities are concerned, are the following. Their impotence for good takes for granted, first, their want of the Spirit and of all spiritual life, secondly, a subjection to the kingdom of sin and Satan, and thirdly, a voluntary aversion to God and rebellion against him. This suggests a threefold corresponding inquiry. First, how is the forfeited presence of the Spirit restored to the human heart, and what effects accompany his return? Secondly, how are the effectually called translated from the family of Satan into the state of adopted sons? And thirdly, how is corrupted nature fully changed and made meet here and hereafter for the love and service of God? The first two points will be considered by us in the present lecture. First, the forfeited presence of the Spirit is restored by Christ's mediatorship and obedience to God's law in precept and penalty. They who fail to apprehend the atonement or reduce it to an empty pageant or governmental expedient in effect, remove this mission of the Comforter from its dependence on the finished work of Christ as the basis or meritorious ground of the Spirit's return to the human heart. They connect the atonement not with the requirements of the divine nature and the inflexible law of God, 
but with a supposed public justice which amounts only to a rectoral display or a deterring motive, but secures nothing. They forget, in the zealous advocacy of their universalism, that the Lord God is the only august public worthy of regard, and that there is no other to which the Most High will adapt his administration. But the question is not as to the extent of the atonement, which rests with the divine good pleasure, but as to its validity as a procuring cause or price, which many, in their anxiety to represent as meant for all, totally denude of its efficacy. They thus undermine the suretyship, substitution, and imputation on which the gift of the Spirit proceeds. They explode the deep federal oneness which lies at the foundation of the whole transaction and secures the inalienable supply of the Spirit to all for whom the atonement was offered. The nature of man's ruin, as implying the forfeiture of the Spirit, furnishes the rationale of the entire doctrine of the Spirit. Man is no longer a spiritual being, and they who speak in that way of his capacities and powers, and of the condition of human nature as it now is, introduce a form of speech which has no true application to the subject. Viewed in his unfallen state, of which the renewed man has some faint conception, and of which the spirit-filled humanity of Jesus was the true image, man might be described as a spiritual being. But with no propriety of language can the expression spiritual be applied to man in his fallen state. So far as the expression is intended to obviate the objection that the operations of the spirit violate the integrity of man's moral nature, the language may be capable of some vindication because it brings us back to the true idea of anthropology and because original sin was never understood, except by Flaccius, to have become the substance of the man. But the term spiritual has so precise a sense and is so connected in our language with biblical usage that every other acceptation is to be avoided as liable to misconception. If we delineate men's actual relation to God, they are described as not having the Spirit, Jude 19, and, as the necessary consequence of this, as sensual or natural, 1 Corinthians 2.14. In other words, so sunk into animal life that their wisdom is earthly, James 4.15, and they themselves without God, Ephesians 2.12. God gave the Spirit to Adam, the earthly and spiritual elements of his constitution being so fully balanced that he was neither preponderantly animal nor absolutely pneumatic, but a living soul occupied in all his faculties by the indwelling Spirit. And had he continued steadfast or taken the true way, which corresponded with the idea of man, he would have passed in a straight course into the pneumatic or spiritual without tasting of death. But by his apostasy, the spirit departed, and he was left in possession of a mere natural or animal being, having not the spirit. Jude 19. That the soul is deprived of the spirit and of all divine light, 
and that he is not disposed to those objects which the law of God enjoins, is too evident to be questioned. Only conscience is left to act in him along with the dim outline of the moral law, of which the lingering remains may still be traced on every human heart. And it may be said of conscience that its voice is heard more in accusing than in excusing. It is noteworthy that in the entire earthly life of Jesus there is no mention of conscience, for the obvious reason that he had the full image of God and received the Spirit not by measure. Thus detached from his primeval ties by the forfeiture of the Spirit, man follows the natural rather than the spiritual, the human rather than the divine. The religious sentiment gives way in all his course before the prevailing influence of the worldly mind. The wrong choice, which in fact is uniformly adopted, must be traced to a wrong bias. And till the nature is renewed by the restoration of the spirit, no motive brought to bear on men's minds avails to turn them toward God. Acting from a bias which draws the mind away, they prefer the shadowy to the real, the speculative to the practical, the superficial and sensuous to those profoundly spiritual and humbling discoveries which are called forth by the divine word. On this point, it is necessary to adjust the balance with the utmost delicacy to preserve the due equipoise. Full emphasis must be given, in all the discussion of this question, to the original state of that fair structure, of which Howe remarks with novel beauty, The stately ruins are visible to every eye that bear in their front, yet extant this doleful inscription, Here God once dwelt. The absence of the Spirit which man, as originally formed, possessed as the spirit of illumination in his understanding and of power in all his faculties, has left the mind in moral and spiritual impotence. If regard be had to the understanding, the unconverted cannot know the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. To the will, he cannot be subject to the law of God, Romans 8.7. To worship, he cannot call Jesus Lord, 1 Corinthians 12.3. To practice, he cannot please God, Romans 8.8. 8. To fruit, he cannot bear fruit, John 15.4. To faith, he cannot receive the spirit of truth, John 14.17. His familiarity with sacred truths, which he does not love, only leaves him seared in conscience and twice dead. For this impotence, the regenerating power of the Holy Ghost is absolutely indispensable. The fact of man's inability, which Scripture everywhere asserts or implies, is to be explained by the withdrawal of the Spirit, which left him in spiritual death. Scripture, therefore, in terms of the most express, denies to man the power or ability to think a good thought. 2 Corinthians 3.5, or to receive the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14, and declares that human nature is wholly turned away from God and enmity against Him, Romans 8.7. 
And this state of heart has a determining influence on the will in all religious and moral judgments. That decisive fact is not apprehended in the same way in Christian and philosophic thought, even where the latter makes the nearest approximation to the truth. The uniform language of Christianity is that it is the state of the will, in other words, of the heart, that either illuminates or darkens the understanding in its spiritual or moral views, and that the relation between the two is not like ordinary knowledge— according to which we must first know a thing before we love it. For, on the contrary, the secularized mind must first love divine things with a spiritual relish before it fully knows them. Hence, there is an important sense in which we may affirm that it is not the intellectual knowledge which determines the conclusions of the will, but conversely— the tendency of the will or heart which determines the judgment of the understanding. That is, beyond question, the mode of statement given in the scriptures, which puts spiritual life before true knowledge, the renewal of the heart before the possibility of a spiritual judgment. Coleridge, in his Literary Remains, beautifully remarks, quote, I believe and hold it as the fundamental article of Christianity that I am a fallen creature, that I am of myself capable of moral evil, but not of myself capable of moral good, and that an evil ground existed in my will previously to any given act or assignable moment of time in my consciousness. I am born a child of wrath, This fearful mystery I pretend not to understand. I cannot even conceive the possibility of it, but I know that it is so. My conscience, the sole fountain of certainty, commands me to believe it, and would itself be a contradiction were it not so, and what is real must be possible. Into the discussion of the relation of free will and divine grace, we are not required, by the topic which we are treating, to enter in all its bearings. As it is often handled, it is frequently more a metaphysical debate on the laws of mind than a question in exegetical or biblical theology. On the subject of free will and the Spirit's agency, the following remarks may suffice. Man's free agency is postulated by everyone who apprehends the subject with any measure of precision as a point which may be described as necessary to his personality and responsibility as a rational creature. But along with the admission of spontaneity and freedom, we must not less strongly hold that man in his natural state, under the forfeiture of the spirit, uniformly chooses the evil in preference to the good. On the one hand, he is free from coaction or restraint, even when the will is carried headlong in a career of sin. On the other hand, the will itself is diseased and vitiated. These are the two sides of the question. And when we put them together, we say with Augustine, the will is always free, but not always good. The will cannot cease to be free without ceasing to exist. 
Man could not be deprived of that freedom without the entire destruction of his mental being as a rational and responsible creature. The liberty of the will consists in this, that he is not carried headlong by blind, fatalistic impulse or by natural necessity or constraint. Whatever he does, he freely does. But the will may be free and not liberated. He may be a free agent and yet the servant of sin. The will may be free and only exercise its freedom against the will of God. I strongly hold the duty of asserting the freedom of the will and the necessity of divine grace as two sides of an inexplicable mystery in the same way as holds true of many other theological points. My duty is to conserve the mystery, which the rationalistic understanding is only too prone to invade, to assert it, not to explain, far less to explode it. The Sayings of Jesus on the Spirit's Work in Regeneration First, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John 3, 3-6 Nicodemus came to question the Lord about his mission and the kingdom of God which he plainly saw was about to be set up. But he was at once met by the practical question bearing on his personal salvation. By this it at once appeared that Jesus came not to be catechized and to answer curious questions, but to teach what bore upon the salvation of his hearers. He made answer rather to the state of mind than to the words of Nicodemus. He showed that a change upon the whole man was indispensably necessary if he should ever have a right of citizenship in the kingdom of God, which does not here mean the eternal felicity, but the messianic kingdom in all its amplitude of meaning. As to the phrase, born again, It is expounded by one class of interpreters as meaning a second time, by another as meaning from above, and the decision based on the general parallelism of Scripture falls very commonly in favor of the rendering a second time. But it must be admitted that neither the import of the term, anothen, nor the style of expression used by John in speaking of regeneration lends it any countenance. For my own part, I am more disposed to accept it as a peculiarity of John's style of language, borrowed from his master, and as denoting from above. The Lord repeats his statement as to the necessity of regeneration, and adds the twofold principle or cause by which it is produced, born of water and of the Spirit. These terms intimate the meritorious and efficient cause. The term water has been variously interpreted. 1. Some refer it to baptism, an opinion current in patristic theology from the earliest times and asserted in the Greek and Latin church and in some of the Protestant formularies. 
But it is untenable, as will be evident to every mind that weighs the matter in the light of common observation. The water to which the Lord refers certainly regenerates and entitles those who receive it to enter the kingdom of God, from which no true member can ever be cast out again, which cannot be affirmed of baptism in every case. 2. Some take it as a hendiades, a view in which most of the Reformed divines concur, implying that the Spirit acts with a cleansing efficacy like that of water. 3. Some of the ablest Dutch divines, for example, Coxeus, Vitringa, Lampa, interpret the water here named in the light of Ezekiel's words, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. Chapter 36.25 With these last interpreters I fully concur. The sprinklings, ablutions, lustrations common in the Mosaic ritual primarily referred to the removal of the guilt which rendered the person of the worshipper unclean and removed him from all approach to God in sanctuary service. The purification of the leper and of those who were unclean by contact with the dead was effected by sprinkling them with water in which a portion of blood or of the ashes of the red heifer, according to the law, was mingled, Leviticus 14.1, Numbers 19.1 and following. It is not to be forgotten that Nicodemus was an accomplished teacher and was profoundly conversant with all the Mosaic rites. He knew well that on the occasion of taking Israel into covenant, Moses took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. Hebrews 9.19, and that a laver, deriving all its value from the altar, or the victim slain on it, was prepared between the altar and the entrance of the tabernacle, that they who approached the Holy One might be made clean. The water referred to by our Lord in this connection was but the ceremonial expression for the cleansing of our person by his own obedience or atoning sacrifice, proving the complete removal of guilt and of everything that could exclude us on the ground of law from the kingdom of God. The second term, spirit, is the personal Holy Spirit, who gives the inward capacity or fitness for the kingdom of God, who breaks the power of sin and makes all things new. The water and the spirit are not to be confounded. They are the two conjoined elements, in other words, the meritorious cause and the efficient cause, which introduce the sinner into the kingdom of God. The water and the spirit are not to be explained as a mere hendiades, or the use of two words for one. The terms are plainly adapted to the tenor of Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 36, 25 and following, compare Zechariah 13, and are both intended to be significant. A third time, with a view to make the statement as to the necessity of regeneration more urgent and emphatic, our Lord substantially repeats his declaration, Marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. And then, to anticipate all cavil, or exception to the mode in which that omnipotent act of God displays itself, he adds, 
The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Verse 8. That this analogy is taken from nature, and is much like one of his parables, is not doubtful. They who have attempted, with Origen and Augustine, to dismiss the comparison and take the term translated wind for the personal spirit, have nothing to say in answer to the argument that all these expressions, bloweth, the sound thereof, the hearing of the sound, and the implied analogy in the words, so is every one, must be accepted as an illustrative description or comparison. The wind, as a natural phenomenon at that moment, as in the case of many of our Lord's illustrations, might arrest their attention. The points of comparison are obviously these. 1. The Spirit's agency is sovereign, like the wind blowing where it will. 2. The mode of his activity is inscrutable. It is like the wind, in regard to which we can neither say where it begins to blow nor where it is hushed to rest. 3. The efficacy is irresistible and its effects indubitable. We hear the sound thereof. Second, a passage of similar import is the following. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. John six sixty three. Christ does not say, my flesh, as in the previous context, where he carries on a discussion with the men of Capernaum. And the change of expression is significant. Interpreters, not perceiving this, have been carried away with the misleading impression that the design was merely to remove offense in the Jewish mind caused by the declaration that Jesus was the bread of life. They think that he still continues to declare that the true life of redeemed men is meritoriously connected with his atoning death. But Luther, when pressed by this text in the sacramentarian controversy, saw the change of expression and accurately referred the words to the carnal sense of unrenewed men. It is no longer my flesh, as in all the previous context. The expression the flesh has no reference to the flesh of Christ. It is the same antithesis that we find in the interview with Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. The 5,000 who would have made him king were so deeply offended by his teaching that they had in a body forsaken him. And the reason of their conduct is here traced to the unspirituality and enmity of the carnal mind. Our Lord declares, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, or imparts the life of God, a boon requiring omnipotent power. To one acquainted with the antithesis between flesh and spirit, or with scripture language generally, it is plain that the allusion is not to the human spirit, nor to Christ's divine nature, but to the Holy Spirit. Third, we come now to what may be called perhaps the most conclusive passage on the Spirit's work in connection with conversion in the whole compass of Scripture. 
And when he has come, he will reprove, better convince, the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because, better in regard to the fact that, they believe not on me. Of righteousness because, better in regard to the fact that, I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment because, better in regard to the fact that, the prince of this world is judged. John sixteen eight to 11 The passage contains a full and exhaustive description of the Spirit's work in the application of redemption, as well as the mission of the Comforter by the Son from the Father. John fifteen twenty six. The verb setting forth the Spirit's function, elegse, may bear one of two senses, to reprove or to convince. The grounds for the decision in every special instance are supplied by the context. The signification to reprove, which the term sometimes bears, implies that a person is reproved for some error which he has previously held. The other meaning, to convince, implies that a person is convinced of some truth previously unknown or unrealized. The term may either mean to reprove and refute a false opinion or to convince one by cogent arguments and ample evidence as to the truth hitherto unknown. Both senses are closely linked together. The notion of reproving, for which some contend, is wholly to be removed from the use of the term in this passage. Though they can both be made to have a show of probability, it is every way preferable, for various reasons, to accept the meaning to convince. To take one conclusive argument, all the objects are not reprehensible, and therefore the idea of reproof is not applicable to them all. Not only so, the verb is introduced but once, and not three times, in connection with the three nouns sin, righteousness, and judgment, and therefore no possible ground exists for admitting any other than a uniform sense which is equally applicable to them all. Another point is the signification of the particle, which is three times expressed in connection with the several members, that is, hoti. It cannot be rendered, as in the English version, because, but in respect to the fact that, It is here an exegetical or specifying particle setting forth that specific kind of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, to which allusion shall be made. In all the members, it must certainly be so taken, because the grammatical structure is uniform, and the maintenance of the same signification yields throughout an appropriate sense. This conclusion militates decidedly against giving to the verb the signification to reprove, because things are mentioned which, so far from being censurable, are infinitely to be desired in the last two clauses. We are told, indeed, by the celebrated Gerhard, that some exegetes did give in this way the specific meaning to the particle hoti, and yet contrived to interpret the verb as meaning to reprove, 
by the addition of certain words, which it was thought might competently be supplied, though they were not expressed. They filled up a supposed ellipsis as follows. He shall reprove the world of sin committed, of righteousness despised, of judgment neglected. But when we examine that exposition, which found favor with not a few, many objections present themselves. It is a harsh ellipsis on the most indulgent consideration. Reproof always strikes on what is reprehensible, that is, either upon evil done or upon persons favored with privileges and chargeable with neglect. But the special neglect must always be expressed. Not only so, on such a construction of the words, not one expression, but various supplementary words, must be supplied to bring out the import. It renders the whole unnatural and obscure to introduce a different verb to every noun, and it is somewhat presumptuous. For who is warranted to supplement the language of our Lord by additions which are not in the text? Nor are such additions at all in harmony with the plain and obvious tenor of Christ's words. We are not, then, under the impression that the verb means to reprove, to resort to any supplement so harsh, unnecessary, and unsuitable. The words are natural and perspicuous as they stand, if we adopt the other rendering, to convince. The meaning is then plain. The proper idea is that of convincing one of anything not truly or fully known. And the objects, as they stand, are of such a nature that one may be convinced of them all, but not reproved for them all. And if we carry with us the thought that the Spirit is occupied about the sin of unbelief, which is the greatest of sins, about imputed righteousness, the only valid plea with God acquired by Christ's obedience unto death, about the judgment of the prince of this world, uh, the language is easy and the sentence natural. To come to the import of the term, shall convince. When it is said that the Spirit shall convince the world, that is, men generally without the partition wall between Jew and Gentile, it means much more than mere instruction and revealed truth. Rather, it implies that the Spirit, in spite of the ignorance and resistance of the carnal mind, will bring men to such a perception of the reality and importance of saving truth that they will no longer resist its evidence. The meaning is that he shall convince men of something hitherto unknown and all three members of the sentence are linked together as follows. He shall convince men in respect to the fact that they believe not on me. In other words, he will demonstrate to the mind that unbelief is a sin, yea, the greatest sin. He shall convince the world of righteousness in respect to the fact that a true and proper righteousness has been wrought out for men by Christ's suffering and death. He shall convince the world of judgment in respect to the fact that Satan has at the great tribunal lost his cause and is denuded of the right which he previously possessed. The efficient cause of all these effects is the personal Holy Ghost, the Comforter, 
and the Spirit of Truth. Christ's own words, as here recorded on the convincing work of the Comforter, is the locus classicus to which all fitly turn whenever discussion is raised or inquiry awakened as to the way in which the Spirit applies redemption. And when he has come, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John 16, 8. As to the nature of that convincing influence which the Spirit brings to bear upon the mind, several things come under our consideration. He sets forth truth to the mind and maintains it against every prepossession or contrary opinion. The Holy Spirit, by the word alone, or through the ministry of those who preach it, convinces the unbelieving world by the prophecies of the Old Testament, by the testimonies of the New Testament, by law and by gospel, so fitly and seasonably that the unwilling are made willing and compelled to feel and to admit in their conscience the truth of the gospel. An impression which is followed by faith in the heart and confession with the mouth. They are pressed by the force of truth and yield. More particularly, he convinces the mind in a threefold way. That is, that unbelief is the greatest sin. That the righteousness procured by Christ is the only righteousness which avails before God and that all the right or claim which Satan had to the possession of man, once his captive but now redeemed, is so invalidated, because the process has been decided against him, that he cannot tyrannize over any but by their own will. Let me briefly notice the several objects in reference to which the Spirit yields his convincing influence. 1. The first object is unbelief, the sin of contravening and rejecting the proposals of the gospel. The Redeemer, the true interpreter of his own words, subjoined what sin he meant when he added, in respect to the fact that they believe not on me. This explanation by the Lord himself refutes the opinion of Piscator and others, that the allusion is to his crucifixion by the Jews, as well as another opinion, that the expression must be generally understood of every sin committed. These interpreters are all of the class who hold that the verb which we render convince must have the meaning of reprove and will not admit the exegetical or specifying force of the particle hoti, which we have rendered in respect to the fact that. But the Lord's meaning is express, pointing to the sin of unbelief, which, abstractly considered, is a violation of a divine command, and concretely considered, is a refusal to accept the merits of a divine Redeemer. To understand the criminality of unbelief, it may be remarked that it contracts guilt from the law as the latter pronounces condemnation generally on all disobedience to the expressed will of God. The law may be taken in a twofold way, that is, as having a general and a special use. The first table of the law condemns generally all unbelief toward the word of God 
and charges it as sin. To be more explicit, let me add that the gospel has its own rule in reference to its own credenda, or things to be believed. There, an object of faith is presented to our view with a special rule or mode divinely prescribed for apprehending it. And according to this rule, the man must act who wishes to be saved. To that rule or mode, many of the names applied to faith are found to have respect. Thus, it is called God's commandment, 1 John 3.23, the way of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.21, the law of faith, Romans 3.27, the work of God, John 6.29, and compliance with it is called obedience to the faith. Romans 1.5. In all these passages, allusion is clearly made to that rule, way, or method by which the blessings of redemption are applied and conferred. But on the contrary, he who contravenes that rule and refuses to walk in that way incurs the guilt of disobedience. Not only so, When unbelief, which is just an act in opposition to the tenor of the gospel, is persistently and resolutely carried out, the law comes forth to fulminate against it. The sin of unbelief is here described with all the enormous guilt attaching to it as a rejection of the proposals of reconciliation, as the chief and the supreme sin, because a sin against the remedy as sinful in itself, and as preventing the remission of all other sins. As unbelief is the sin by eminence, it is upon this that the convincing influence of the Spirit is mainly brought to bear. Considered in its consequences, this sin of unbelief has its immediate ground of condemnation in the fact that all other sins, original and actual, with all their guilt, are remissible through faith in Christ— But this sin involves the rejection of the graciously provided remedy, and final unbelief has nothing to interpose between the sinner and righteous condemnation. Hence, Luther was wont to affirm that unbelief alone condemns, since it makes the person evil and the works evil. The sin of unbelief is here described as if it were the only sin— because, according to the happy remark of Augustine, while it continues, all other sins are retained, and when it departs, all other sins are remitted. Not only so, it constantly produces new sins. For as faith may be considered either as it apprehends Christ or as it works by love, unbelief in like manner may be considered either as refusing Christ's redeeming work or as it works by sin against the conscience. Unbelief may be called the mother sin, because it not only leaves all guilt remaining, but gives force to reigning sins and origin to a polluted conscience. But however great and perilous this sin may be, such is the ignorance in which men naturally are involved that its criminality is totally unknown till it is brought home by the convincing influence of the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. Conscience may convince men of ordinary sins, but never of the sin of unbelief. Of the enormity of this sin, no man was ever convinced but by the Holy Ghost himself.
second. The second object of which they are convinced is righteousness, which is immediately after the former brought before the mind in order to prevent despair. This expression must not be understood as meaning that he who was crucified on the charge of sedition and blasphemy is proved to be innocent and righteous. That interpretation is supported by ingenious arguments, and especially by this, that God vindicated his innocence by raising him from the dead, but it is by no means suited to the context. For, when Christ promises the Comforter to convince them of the sin of unbelief, he must be understood as meaning unbelief as to his messiahship and saving work, and not merely as to his being a righteous man. The first clause presupposes that he is a Savior, and so must the second. To convince the world of righteousness must mean that the Spirit gives convincing evidence not merely that his cause is good and that he is innocent, but that in him is found the righteousness which the world needs, the imputed righteousness which was graciously provided for us and becomes ours by faith. When it is added, he shall convince the world of righteousness in respect to the fact that I go to the Father and ye see me no more, we see that the righteousness is equivalent to an obedience which culminated in suffering and death, and not an infused righteousness, as the Romanists allege, nor God's essential righteousness, as was alleged by Osiander, and as is re-echoed by the modern Plymouthists. According to the correct interpretation of Luther and the great divines of the Lutheran Church, the meaning is... By my departure, that is, by my death and sufferings, a valid righteousness has been procured for all true believers. For all the actions of him who is by eminence the servant of the Lord are at once mediatorial and redeeming. The figure is taken from a returning exile or traveler who has been from home, and in this case, from the end of that work of abasement or atonement and expiation, for the completion of which he had come forth from the Father, John 16, 28. The same style of language had been several times used before, not only to the disciples, John 13, 33, but on previous occasions to the Jews, John 7, 34, chapter 8, 21. This whole style of language presupposes a commission or office to be discharged, a coming forth from the Father to perform it, and a return with all the demonstrations of acceptance to him who sent him. The language implies all Christ's offices, but especially his meritorious work as the servant of the Lord and the high priest of our profession. Hebrews 3.1 The additional words, and ye shall see me no more, are a mere supplement to the previous thought, conveying little more than a filling up of the description by a reference to the mental state of the disciples, who must needs prepare themselves for losing that visible intercourse and that exchange of thought and speech in which they had found their satisfaction. But the appended phrase is a mere adjunct, 
and no constituent of the righteousness such as the previous clause involves, the allusion being merely to the apostles. This language intimates that the righteousness which avails with God consists not, as the Romanists will have it, in that which is infused, nor in the mere act of faith regarded as our obedience, as the Arminian will have it, but in his going to the Father by his meritorious and atoning death. It implies that he who was sent on such an errand, and who returned with all the tokens of cordial welcome and great reward, must have brought in the everlasting righteousness and sealed up the vision and prophecy. Daniel 9.24 But of that righteousness the world must be convinced, if it is to be of any value to the sons of men. It must be duly announced or testified by apostles orally and in writing, and by the Holy Ghost the Comforter inwardly. John fifteen twenty six and 27. Hence it is said that the Holy Ghost is sent to convince the world of this everlasting or imputed righteousness, that is, to show men that they who are denuded of any proper righteousness should, without delay, avail themselves of that which has magnified the law and made it honorable. Third, the third object of which the world is convinced by the comforter is judgment. This benefit stands very closely related to the former. The righteousness which Christ acquired by his going to the Father, as already explained, and which is applied by imputation to all them that believe, puts them in a friendly relation to God, and God in a friendly relation to them, because they are righteous in Christ's righteousness. And this is the reason why our Lord immediately subjoins the mention of judgment. In due order, and based upon the former, comes deliverance from Satan. As to the judgment here mentioned, it is not to be interpreted as meaning the authority which Christ, as victor over Satan, an accepted surety, wields as supreme Lord of heaven and earth. That view, embodying a precious truth, is too general here and misses the point of the clause, though held by Chrysostom, Cyril, Piscator, and many recent commentators. Obviously, the import of the words does not refer to what is deposited in Christ as a potentate, able to disarm the strong man armed, but to what was inflicted on Satan, when the cause which was before the supreme tribunal for final adjudication was decided against him. The work of the second Adam, satisfying every claim of law and justice, terminated Satan's right, and reversed his authority acquired by conquest. We are led to this conclusion, as in the two previous clauses, by the exegetical or specifying article hoti, which must still have the same meaning and only declare what had yet been but obscurely expressed. It is but one thing, only more fully declared— It is not statement and reason of the statement as given in the English authorized version. The meaning is as follows. He shall convince the world of judgment in respect to the fact that the prince of the world has been judged. 
The use of the perfect passive, kekritai, intimates that it was within a few hours, that it was as good as done, a mode of speech by no means uncommon in our Lord's style. See John 12.31. The meaning is that Satan has been judged in the sense that the great cause has gone against him and that he has no more right to retain the world which he previously held by right of conquest. What is this world, and who is its prince? It is not the fabric of the universe, which God created, upholds, and rules, but the world of men seduced by the tempter, and held by a certain claim of right, his subjects and his sons doing the lusts of their father. Ephesians 2.2, 2, John 8.44 The phraseology is borrowed from a legal proceeding carried on by two contending parties, Satan on the one side, contending that he had a right of property in men who had become his subjects, that a rebel cannot be restored to favor, but must be left in his hands, that the highly extolled rectitude of the supreme judge must carry out the same sentence on men that had been carried out and was forever to be carried out on himself, the mediator on the other side, appealing to the fact that, as he took man's place under the broken law to fulfill its obligations and bear its penalty in their room, justice as well as mercy required that Satan's right of conquest should be reversed, and the world given to him who was its second Adam and Lord of all. Such was the cause to be finally and irrevocably decided— and, on the ground of Christ's satisfaction and sufficient ransom, the adjudication was rightfully decided against the prince of this world, who was to be cast out of his dominions and compelled to surrender the world, that is, the human family, into other hands. He can no longer keep his goods in peace when the stronger than he appears upon the scene. Luke 11.21 Isaiah 49.24, 1 Corinthians 15.54. Of all this, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, comes to convince the hearers of the gospel, to whom the apostles testified, John 15.26 and 27. Men are thus convinced that they may be free indeed, John 8.36, no more subjects of the tempter, no more bound to obey him, but loyal subjects of Christ and made willing in a day of his power. Psalm 110, verse 3. As to the issue of this convincing process, exegetes are by no means at one. Many who are correct in expounding the term convince assume unwarrantably a twofold result and assert that it may sometimes end in the obdurate mind and sometimes in saving faith. Even Calvin arrives at the conclusion that under the term world may be comprehended an allusion to hypocrites and reprobates, as well as to those who are truly to be converted. Tholuck, after putting together a variety of opinions, comes to no firm decision. On the other hand, practical writers and preachers, weighing the passage and its bearings upon religious experience, 
come, for the most part, to the conclusion that the result of this convincing process ends in true conversion. I cannot but regard that as the only true and legitimate interpretation. As so much uncertainty prevails, I have gone into a full consideration of this passage with all the light reflected from the history of interpretation, believing that this was by no means unnecessary. My full persuasion is that the convincing process of the Spirit, thus described by Christ in the last evening of his intercourse with the disciples, is so put as to bring out the successive steps, or the order of salvation, through which the Spirit leads the awakened mind, and that we can only view it as issuing in a sound conversion. I hold that it means to convince by clear and cogent arguments. It brings the ruin and the remedy together. It is a thunderbolt against all the views of legalists. We shall next consider Christ's testimony to the blasphemy or sin against the Holy Ghost. Whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Matthew 12.32 On the occasion of healing a demoniac, the Pharisees wished to invalidate the proof of Christ's divine mission by the allegation that the miracle was not performed by the finger of God, but by Beelzebul, the prince of the devils. Without explicitly stating that they had committed or were committing the sin against the Holy Ghost, he gives them a solemn warning that there is a sin against the Holy Ghost which is unpardonable. He speaks absolutely of an irremissible sin, for all other sin can be remitted on the ground of Christ's satisfaction through faith and repentance. But with the solemnity of an oath by himself, as the verily, verily indicates, he declares that this sin has no forgiveness. As to the nature of this sin against the Holy Ghost, it is shrouded in a certain mystery, but it is neither calculated nor intended to give perplexity to any Christian mind. It may be difficult to define it, and the most conflicting opinions were entertained among the ancient fathers and downwards from the Reformation times. Thus, Tertullian, Hilary, and other fathers maintained that the sin against the Spirit meant blasphemy, not against the human nature of Christ, which is pardonable, but against his divine nature, which is unpardonable. Cyprian explained it of apostasy, or the denial of Christ, and consequently held that the lapsed could scarcely, if at all, be forgiven. Origen expounded the passage of those sins which are committed subsequent to baptism. But these essentially novation comments, when fully carried out, come into collision with the creed, which declares, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Athanasius is not consistent with himself. We may perhaps distribute the vast variety of interpretations scattered over the works of expositors and over the theological systems of divines into three following classes. 
first. Those which virtually make it a sin possible only when Christ was among men in the exercise of his personal ministry. Chrysostom and Jerome explain it as if our Lord meant to say, He that speaks against the Son of Man, regarding him as nothing more than man, may obtain forgiveness. But he who ascribes these miracles to Satan, while discerning in them the indications of divine power, shall never be forgiven. For this is the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost, by whom Christ performed his mighty deeds. Pfaff and Klinkenberg, in last century, strongly asserted that interpretation. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things Reformed.